So they open a sanctuary and they call it Wildlife on Easy Street. This place is really nothing like Big Cat Rescue is today because at that time it was more just a place that attracted other big cat lovers who wanted to basically play with and interact with big cats one-on-one. You could even spend $75 and uh, sleep with a big cat in a cabin for the night. Uh, Carol was also breeding a bunch of these smaller exotic cat species because she was under the impression that if she just makes more of these endangered species, she's actually helping them because then there's you know more of these cats in the world and they're less endangered. It happened at a time before the internet was available to us, all of this learning that we were doing. And the only people that we could learn from at that period of time were the breeders and dealers. And they were saying, oh, you should breed these animals because they're endangered. They said the zoos don't know what they're doing and they're going to disappear in the wild. And so we thought, well, that's something that we could definitely do to help save the cats. Like like as if they might sustain a wild population someday if push came to Maybe, show. or I don't, I don't really know what goes through people's heads when they're thinking that. If they're thinking like, oh, they can be introduced into the wild, or if they're just thinking like, oh, their mere existence like makes the species less endangered and, you know, just like completely cut off from how conservation works. You know, a species has to be in its environment playing a role to actually sort of matter. Carol, meanwhile, you know, she's breeding these cats and she's selling them to other people so that, you know, they can do the same or whatever. But within, you know, a year or so, she starts noticing that people are bringing their their now grown kittens back to her because they're like, you know, dear Lord, I cannot deal with this bobcat. Like, please take it back. And then I started going to the conferences for the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and I discovered that none of these cats that are in private hands serve any kind of conservation value. And so there's just no reason to be breeding these cats in private hands. And for Carol, that just, that's like, a, it's like a switch goes off. She does a 360 and she's like, okay, uh-uh. No more breeding cats. I was wrong. I'm going to neuter and spay all my animals and start working on a way to reduce big cat ownership because it's just contributing to a problem rather than solving it. I mean, it sounds like Carol went from being the, like, cliche big cat person to, like, someone who actually looks this problem in the eye and then changes a bit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I mean, Carol has a lot of critics. A lot of people do not like Carol because they perceive her as, you know, a threat to their rights, their big cats. And they like to to call her a hypocrite and they like to point to her past, you know, 20 years ago. And one of the first things you'll see if you Google her name and come across some of these articles is allegations that Carol uh, murdered her first husband So her first husband, he basically walked out the door one day and he was never heard from again. No one could find any clues, nothing. But no evidence was ever actually found linking her to anything to do with his disappearance. So that brings us to Howard, who's really the unsung hero of Big Cat Rescue. Carol founded this sanctuary in the 90s and Howard came on board in the 2000s. Before Howard came on, you know, Carol's project had a lot of heart behind it, but organizationally, things were a mess. Howard worked over Carol's spreadsheets, and he developed a business plan for her. He took things from Carol's passion project to creating an actual functioning nonprofit organization. 
my profession was going into small businesses where the entrepreneur had started it. So Howard specializes professionally in basically cleaning up the accounting mess of small businesses to enable them to grow. I did a series of those and it takes breaks in between. And uh, during one of those breaks, I met Carol. Where did you guys meet? Well, the full story, and then you can edit it, okay? (laughs) Uh, So Carol and Howard met through a mutual friend who was throwing a fundraiser to help lower euthanasia rates for dogs and cats. Friday night, there's this event at the aquarium, just 30 people, great speaker, would you come to that? I said, okay. So I get in my suit and trundle on down to the aquarium, which closes at 5. There was some mix-up with the time on the invitation, so Carol and Howard arrived at the same time and were the first and only two people there. So what do you do? You turn and you say, hi, and there was this very attractive woman behind me. I said, are you going to this pet thing? And she said, yes. And I said, and how does it happen that you're coming to this? And she said, well, I'm the founder of Wildlife on Easy Street and was used to hearing, what's that? And I said, oh, I've been there. Well, I would have just married him right then. (laughs) Somebody that actually knew about us. So we get up to the room, and there's this gorgeous setup with a buffet and candlelight and a bar and a bartender across the way, and nobody else is there. I go to the bartender, and he said, well, it doesn't start till 5.30. So I came back to Carol, and I was just in kind of a flippant mood, and I looked her very seriously, and I said, it turns out there's no function. She looked at me and said, well, what do you mean? I said, turns out the whole thing is a sham that Mary set up just so you and I would meet. <laughs> what year was that? That was in 2002. That was November 1st is, is the day we met at the aquarium, right? Um, and were the big cats a turn-on or a turn-off that this was part of the package? They weren't... Nobody's ever asked you that before. Oh, that's why I'm struggling. <laughs> uh, they, they were neither. And Carol Howard really saw a project. You know, he saw someone uh, beautiful and motivated that you know, he was attracted to and wanted to help. But more than that, he saw a chance to really fix things for her sanctuary and move things forward in the same way that he did for small businesses throughout his career. What happened was Carol brought me out of the sanctuary that January after a few dates. And I kind of have this natural... I don't know, instinct or almost addiction to fix it, you know? And so I made the big mistake of saying maybe I could help. Apparently on their honeymoon, Carol and Howard wrote out this like 20 or 25 year plan of like their life mission to stop big cat ownerships. They call it to like to stop the bad guys from exploiting big cats. So we're like 15 years into their 25 year plan. Yeah, I mean, they've made some pretty good progress, though, on this plan. Carol, over the years, has built up this ginormous online following. She does, like, a live stream video practically every day. They are avid Facebook posters. And, I mean, they have, like, over a million people following their operations and donating to them. And they're really using that following uh, to their advantage to achieve the goals that they've they've set out to do. So one of the first really big things they did was the closure of this thing called the generic tiger loophole. That rule in 1998, Fish and Wildlife Service said, 
So the generic tiger loophole, you might remember, there's all those um, mutt tigers. They're no longer six, the six subspecies that occur in the wild. They're just complete American mutts. And the Fish and Wildlife Service decided, hey, we're not going to regulate these mutt tigers. Protections under the Endangered Species Act won't apply to them. And that allowed those tigers to be freely traded around the country. So it created this just open door for these people to breed. The only solution is to change the laws so this isn't happening. But it takes forever to get a rule made or changed. So um, back in 2011, they linked up with major nonprofit organizations who kind of were aligned on the same vision. And they all as a group decided like, okay, like this is one of our big goals and we're going to get this done. So Carol and Howard pretty much just sicked their huge social media following on this issue. And then they had their followers absolutely inundate Fish and Wildlife with 15,000 comments saying, yeah, close the loophole, close the loophole. Like 15,000. So like, yeah, so Fish and Wildlife was like, oh my gosh, like fine, we'll close the loophole, which they did in 2016. What's the next thing that they are trying to do or what did they do next? So their sites are next set on passing federal legislation. So a bill that would actually give complete federal oversight to big cat ownership. And this this bill is called the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And it would basically do two big things. First of all, it would ban any public physical contact with big cats. So this is like cub petting or like having a cheetah at your wedding that everyone's like taking photos with, things like that. The other thing that that federal oversight would do is force everybody who had a big cat to register it. And, you know, while it wouldn't ban big cat ownership outright, it would at least mean that we'd know, okay, where are all these cats? So, you know, if somebody like Terry Thompson decides to throw open the cages for his animals, you know, going in like, okay, we have to find 12 tigers. So, But it sounds like they're going to have to get Republican support behind something that is essentially adding governmental oversight to the lives of Americans. Like, it seems like a difficult thing to do. Yes. And if they were coming at this only from this tree hugger, let's save the big kitties point of view, it would probably be impossible. But the secret weapon in their arsenal of support is the public safety part of the Big Cat Public Safety Act. Over here is, a, is, a, this is what I've been very successful with with big cats right here, is an umbrella. Now, so Tim Harrison retired from his job as a cop slash firefighter slash paramedic, but he hasn't really retired from that world. What he does now is he spends his time traveling all over the country, training first responders with how to deal with, for example, a tiger that they find in a house. And you see, uh, see a tiger or a lion in somebody's home or something like that, and you need to back them off a little bit, and you don't want to shoot them at that time. What happens is, is you come at him with your umbrella, and he freak out. Big cats absolutely freak out. <laughs> so the rules of engagement with a tiger are, like, try and move it via umbrella. <laughs> yeah. Also being, like, a very calm. I mean, Tim says his ultimate goal is safety for animals and also safety for people. It's the people part, though, that helps them make a case for this new law. One of the political contexts here that you have to understand is that for us, 
on the Republican side, the story has a lot more weight when you kind of talk about the public safety aspect of it. This is Ryan O'Dwyer, a lobbyist that came to Florida for the Republican National Convention a few years ago. He happened to go to Big Cat Rescue, and he's been working with Howard and Carol in Washington ever since. Especially in Washington, when we're trying to gain Republican favor, um, where they're not so keen on the idea of federal empowerment over an issue like this, we can say, well, look, you know, are you against protecting our first responders? The other thing about this legislation is it's not just about protecting first responders or lowering the number of these American tigers. It doesn't really seem like there would be a connection between tigers in captivity here in the U.S. and tigers living in the wild. But because there's a robust black market for tiger parts in Asia, any tigers in captivity can and do feed into the black market for tiger parts. And any availability of tiger parts is bad for tigers in the wild because it perpetuates demand for tiger products and that encourages people to poach. As long as there's going to be money that can be made off of, you know, a dead tiger that someone kills in the wild, people will continue to pursue that activity. More than that, though, the fact that we have all these tigers in backyards and basements, and we don't even know how many we have, and, you know, it's completely legal in a lot of places, it affects the ability of U.S. diplomats to bring this point up with China. So when, you know, they go to China and they're like, hey, we would like you to get better about tiger conservation and crack down on the black market trade in your country. The Chinese just kind of laugh at them and are like, who are you to talk? You guys don't even know where all your tigers are. So the bill is making good progress in the House. It was reported out of the Committee on Natural Resources on September 18th, and since then they've got a 95 more co-sponsors. So they now have 220 co-sponsors signed up to support the bill there, and they're hoping it's going to be sent to the floor for a vote before the end of this year. If that happens, it's almost certainly going to pass. In the Senate, on the other hand, the bill was just introduced at the end of September, and so far it has 13 co-sponsors. So if you had to give the, like, the Big Cat Public Safety Act a grade... As far as like, how far is it going to go to solve this problem? Uh, how 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 good is it? Would you say B? Maybe maybe B minus if I'm you know in a bad mood. Okay. Why do you, why do you say? Well, because you can still have big cats if you you know check all the boxes. I mean, that said, I do think the Big Cat Public Safety Act will go a really long way to stopping this problem because. You're just not going to have the same number of animals floating around kind of in need of a home because of that cub petting part of it. Yeah. It's like not only are there not going to be as many animals present or available, but you're also not planting the idea in people's head that like, oh, hey, I can have a, a tiger too. Yeah. I mean, I guess we're living in this moment where the idea of owning a tiger is not ridiculous. No, and not at all. It has been ridiculous for most of history. Yeah. It's weird that people need to be reminded of that, but that's where we're at right now. This is the inside. The first time we did Undercover, this is going to shock you right here. It's Inside Edition Undercover. I don't do much with Inside Edition, but nobody else would listen to me. So the boy got his arm ripped off by a neighbor's tiger. Every time these groups tell you nobody gets injured, 
It's always the people that own the animals. It's a bunch of crap. We picked this out of 300 stories that year of children injured. This boy went right over to the neighbor's house, reached through, pet the tiger, and got his arm ripped off. Paramedics did a fantastic job. And the next little girl, beautiful little girl, her dad had a, a tiger. It jumped over him, played rough with her, and broke her neck. And people said, this is the dad here. He's a doctor, too. The sad part about this is, is people don't know what's going on. Well, we took them there. This is an auction in Amish country, Mount Hope, Ohio. The biggest auction in the country at the time. Look at the crowd when you get in here. I don't know if we can turn the lights off. Look at the crowd. The crowd is massive. Look at that. Black leopard cubs, as fast as you can bring them out. As fast as you can bring them out, cougar cubs. So when somebody tells, look at the boxes over there. Look at the crowd. That's just one building. And all these animals are all stacked on top of each other. They're all tigers, leopards, cougars. When people say, is cougars coming back to Ohio? No, they're being turned loose in Ohio. Now, when you get to the black leopard cubs... That was Rachel Neuer, a freelance journalist whose work can be found in the New York Times, National Geographic, and more. Her story, The Strange and Dangerous World of America's Big Cat People, an accompanying podcast, Cat People, was published by Long Reads. It was produced by Peter Fickwright and Audrey Quinn. Music and sound design by Robbie Carver, editing by Mike Dang and Chris Outcult, art by Zoe Van Dyke, and fact-checking by Matt Giles. This was just a little bonus episode that we dropped here at Outside In, which, by the way, is produced by me, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, and whose executive producer is Erica Janik and is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. We will be back next week with another original episode of Outside In.